The following content is brought to you as a part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. Over the next six weeks, we'll be focusing on breaking down the confession that we adopted as a new church, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. If you weren't here last week, you would have been shocked to find that I have changed the confession to fit my own desires. No. Um, Yeah, right? Hey, I've got the mic. I'm the boss. No, no. I'm the boss. (laughs) Yes, this is my truth, and it applies to all of you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Am I loud? Is this too loud? Am I going to burn? Okay. All right. All right. Um, so last week, we covered the, the Sabbath. Uh, and in the, in the Sabbath chapter, as in, this, in this printing, right, this is just a reprinting of uh, the 1689 London, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, and it carries over um, the teaching that's contained within, uh, uh, normally called, a, if, if, if you ever heard someone um, described as a Sabbatarian, um, this would be someone who, who believes that, you know, on the Sabbath you should be resting from all labors. Completely valid view, but we don't enforce that at Ashland, and so we updated it uh, last week with a little insert. And and the way the insert is worded, it that's the way that it's worded in the confession that we've adopted as a church. Uh, so we're not just like changing things on the fly as we come across them. They're like, oh, that's in here. We better update, put in an iOS update to our confession, um, but it's just different than what's printed here. And this week we have another uh, minute update, really not so much an update, so much as a, a subtraction, but we will get into that. Um, but let's, let's begin our time with a, uh, with, a, with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads and pray. Um, Father, uh, we ask that... Uh, in this in these moments, as we um, seek to understand the truth about you, I pray, uh, Father, that each of us would have um, an inquiring mind that's alert. Um, uh, this late on a Wednesday, uh, I know that each of us has had a busy day, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to glean uh, truth uh, from this confession. I pray, Father, that where uh, where the confession falls short. Um, since it's not infallible, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to be discerning. And, and Father, we pray that uh, tonight we, each of us would uh, glean some new truth about Christ that delights our heart. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, so anytime uh, you enter a church, a new church, or uh, how many of you have been through like checking out a new church in the past Let's say 10 years, because we've got a lot of 10 years. You've, you've, you've been, I guess maybe you could consider me to have done that. Uh, Josh has. 10 years? Is it? It hasn't been 10 years yet? Rookie. 
Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, we, so, so what are some of the questions you ask of a church when you are visiting? What are the, some of the things you want to know? Some of you may have already come in with a list. What are some of the kind of the key things you had to know about a church before you would join it? I'm interested to hear what Josh has to say, actually. When you were looking at shopping around at Ash, you looked, you visited Ashland. Where else did you visit in Lexington? For sales. Okay. What were you? Okay. What were you looking for? What, what was you, were some of you, what, maybe just one of your criteria. The preaching, okay. It, faithful, hopefully good preaching. Faithful first, then good, hopefully. Yeah? Small groups. Community, okay. Breck, you, you, you were visiting churches not too long ago, right? A couple years now? What were you looking for? Right. Who's the authority here? Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, any anyone else have any? What is some criteria? A personal fit. Hey, that's that's just true. You're just not going to fit in everywhere, right? Every church is not for everybody. That's true. We have found that out many times. But and there's, there's nothing to be ashamed of there. Um, now, one of the things uh, you should be asking, or uh, you may have known, may may not have known, is is where, where's the power here, right? You, kinda, you can kind of walk into any room and we're kind of experts at finding out who's the authority in the room, who's the boss here. Uh, we're, we're, our, our, uh, our ears are kind of attuned to that. And it, sound, it seems obvious, right? Who would you say is the authority in a church? Give me the, the Sunday school answer. The pastor? No. <laughs> Jesus, okay. Yes, but yes, of, of course, there's officers in the church. That, yeah, the, the Sunday school answer is always Jesus. But yes, you know, you say, okay, but the, the pastor, right, this person holds a specific office, but, you know, you'd say, who holds the power here? You know, hopefully every church probably wouldn't, but let's say we hope, we hope every church would say the word of God. The word of Jesus Christ rules this body. But how many of you have been to a church where that isn't the real case? Um, um, who are some of the different kinds of people that may hold authority in a church? This could be a church you've actually been to or not. Yes. The Pope, right? Okay, so... It's interesting because they say what, the Pope is the vicar of Christ, right? The person who seats, who's seated in Christ's throne here on earth. And, but they, they're remarkably different, <laughs> aren't they? Like you'd hope that the person sitting on Jesus' throne while he's away, quote unquote, away, as, as Catholics see it, would, they, you'd think they'd have a more uniform voice. They don't typically, do they? Especially this new guy. Um, so the Pope, all right, all right, let's think a little more Baptist, though. The deacons. Yeah, have you ever gone into a place where uh, everybody seems to be at the mercy of the deacon board? Uh, yeah, that's, that's often the case, case in Baptist churches. Um, that, that's, what, that's a lot of the times what you'll find is that, you know, there's a pastor, there's a congregation, but the deacons make all the decisions. Um, 
and they're typically just like older guys and uh, equally curmudgeon Maybe that's too much. I, I always have to make, like when I teach these things, Joseph has to go back and cut so much out. Um, if you weren't here last week, you missed a great O.J. Simpson reference that won't be featured in the podcast. Um, but, so uh, we're answering the question of, of really, just really broadly speaking, we're answering the question of power tonight. Who holds the power in our church as written uh, in the confession? And I actually need a Bible. I forgot mine. This is not promising. <laughs> uh, turn your Bible, grab a Bible, turn to Ephesians 1. All right, look with me at verse 18. Uh, it says, having, your, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his, here's that word, power, towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. And we can just pause there and just say that any... Uh, you know, anytime you get people together, their power is going to be an issue. Um, but the Christian has the unique perspective, the unique understanding, or at least they rightly recognize that all power begins with this first. There is no power in the church without the power of Christ for salvation to those who believe. So Look at his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So this Jesus who was raised by the power of the Father is now the owner of all power in the cosmos. He, he is seated on the throne of all authority in the universe. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so the entire universe has been subject, subjected to him, but it often doesn't seem like that when you watch Fox News or when you watch MSNBC. The question of who's actually in power honestly isn't quite settled yet as, as far as humankind is concerned. Uh, but while things may seem chaotic outside, the church in the here and the now is where Christ is ruling. So we can see his rule manifested in the local church. And so that's where we begin as Baptists, is that we don't believe that Jesus, uh, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, the Pope, we don't believe that, okay, Jesus is away right now, uh, but, you know, hey, he's out right now, but if you need anything, text the Pope. Uh, he'll tell you what to do. No, that's not what we believe as Baptists, all right? We believe that uh, Jesus is currently ruling the church. It's, this isn't in the past tense, but that he is ruling as the head of the church. 
And so as Baptists, we have a unique responsibility, a unique responsibility to acknowledge Jesus' lordship over our church. And we've done our best uh, to create a governance structure that we believe is biblical and represents the fact that Jesus is still ruling the church. He's not out of office. Um, but let, let's begin um, in this discussion. Look at uh, chapter 26. This discussion is about the church. And the first uh, distinction that's made here is the invisible church versus the visible church. Uh, the invisible church was defined as all of Christendom, right? Everyone who saved everywhere. Uh, and so we, we can't shortchange Christ when we talk about uh, who he's come to save. He's come to save every single one, every single one of us who's believed on Christ, who's trusted in him. But if you've been to church lately or you have relatives or if you've interacted with anybody who is, is not, or has been a Christian, it's, it can be very hard to tell, can it? Uh, you know, you've heard, you've heard this person make a profession of faith at one point in their life, but now they show no fruit of it. And, you know, the temptation is to rush to judgment and say they are or are not. But oftentimes, as you've probably experienced, it can be pretty hard to tell, can it? Uh, who's actually a believer in Christ? Uh, and so the invisible church is a collected of all of those who have believed, whether we can perceive it or not, right? That's why the term invisible is used here. It's this big Catholic church all over the globe. Um, but this becomes a, a pretty difficult way to rule the church because I'm ha I would have trouble uh, exercising fellowship and community with a believer in sub-Saharan Africa, right? It's, it's, it, you can do it a little bit now with like Facebook and email, but, you know, the church is all over the globe. But can you truly have fellowship with someone who you've never met? Obviously, you'd probably say, I mean, yes, in Christ, but I, I'm not experiencing that. I don't know every single believer. And so there's the second distinction is made of the visible church. And if you want a good definition of the visible church, you can look right around here. Uh, these are the people that you can see. Uh, these are the people that you know, uh, you know, their good works, and you've seen their profession of faith, and you serve alongside them. The visible church is... In this case, your local assembly. Uh, this is uh, the local church. Uh, and so it's to be made up of these visible saints. And the means by which we've been given to identify these visible saints is uh, membership in the local body. So uh, you're looking at people who are members of the church, uh, but also you're looking at their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. So you're making your best judgment about someone who's clinging to Christ by are they acting in accordance with the belief that they have? And the confession is, is, is not naive. Uh, it acknowledges that there's going to be an issue here. Uh, there, it's an issue of perception. Uh, it says that any church is going to uh, experience its fair share of mixture. What do you think it means by that? In the makeup of the church. Converted and unconverted. Yes, that's exactly right. So we don't pretend uh, to be able to bestow salvation, and we don't really even have the ability to often rightly determine if someone is a believer or not, right? We can make our best judgment. 
We can be cautious. Uh, we can do all of those things, and we do our best at this church through um, an interview process before someone's baptized, but at the end of the day, you can't say you know with 100% certainty, and the confession's clear about that. It says, you know, there's going to be some mixture. There's going to be people who join the church who they don't turn out to be believers, um, and mistakes will be made, but it ultimately says that the kingdom belongs to Christ. Uh, but ultimately, so, so we know that Christ holds the power, but he, uh, how does he exercise that authority in the church? So now we're getting to kind of the, the, the next question that we asked at the beginning. Who holds uh, the power in the church? As Baptists, what do we believe? Where does the authority in the church rest? I'll give you a hint. Uh, you could, you, we, we do it almost, uh, every time someone becomes a member of the church, we, we raise our hands, right? Uh, ultimately the power in the local church, Christ's power is given to the congregation itself to be a steward of. Uh, and this means all kinds of things, but most importantly, it means that jo pastor Josh and pastor Casey are not mini popes. Uh, they're not the rulers of the church, uh, the authority, uh, the, the authority of Christ is seated with the congregation. Uh, and so that's why on, uh, on key issues, we find ourselves voting a lot. But we don't vote on what sermons Pastor Casey and Pastor Josh are going to preach on Sundays. Uh, we typically don't vote on the color of anything. Has anyone, we say that a lot, has anyone actually witnessed a church vote over the color of something? Josh, Bob? Yeah. And you know, that's kind of a hairy place to be uh, because everybody's got a different favorite color, right? Mine's blue. Tina, is yours blue as well? Okay. Anybody? I know. Everybody's is blue. We would have a pretty easy time of this. No. <laughs> yeah, we'd make this work here. No. Uh, and so uh, the, the authority has been given to the congregation, but at the end of the day, we just can't take votes on everything. And we have clear biblical commands uh, to help, help us with the facilitation uh, and the execution of that authority, right? So we don't call and take a vote every time. And so uh, God has instituted uh, really two offices uh, to help the church exert its power. Uh, what are those two offices that we see in, in the New Testament? We have both of them. And two of them are sitting right there. We have pastors and, and deacons. All right, so uh, we have pastors and deacons that are given uh, to help the congregation work out its authority. authority. Um, but at the end of the day, each church has its own governance according to the according to this confession. It's not given to their leaders. They're not the ultimate authority. Uh, but Christ has entrusted his authority to the church uh, at this time. And we're also, uh, it also talks about how we're to relate to other churches, uh, which begs the question, uh, is, it like, is it like Best Buy versus, what was the old one? Circuit City. Remember Circuit City? Rick remembers that. <laughs> Circuit City was awesome. 
Uh, but uh, are we in competition with other churches? Uh, you know, if you, you've got a neighbor or a family member that you're trying to get to come to church and, uh, you know, you're invi- you've been inviting them for years and then they're like, oh yeah, hey, I'm going to church. Uh, I'm going to this church down the street. Should you be upset about that? Uh, <laughs> should you be, yeah. Hannah says, yes, be very upset. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, but there's, there's rules given to us about how we're to associate. So while we're autonomous over ourselves, we don't pretend that other churches don't exist, and we don't pretend certainly like they're competition. And so we have a foundation for associations. Uh, actually, currently, Ashland, we're not a member of any associations yet. We still have to be incorporated. Uh, but um, Buckner Baptist, then Ashland Community Church, were a member of... Uh, a nationwide uh, association, and then a local one. You guys know what they were? No. This is. I'm glad I'm informing you. So we're a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and then also uh, the KBC, the Kentucky Baptist Convention. And then I don't know if we were a part of the Trimble. You know. One time. Yeah, we remember the Trimble thing. Um, Yeah, well, we have a foundation for assemblies. This is not something that's like mandated here, but it's saying, hey, this is is a great thing. Uh, Churches should be cooperating together for mutual edification. Uh, And so we we do this uh, basically, uh, we went to LaGrange Baptist Church. uh, What was that? When was that? The foster training. Is that Monday night? Who went to that? Did anybody go to that? Is it just you, buddy? No, a few people went. Yeah, so we're cooperating with LaGrange Baptist Church to help orphans. Um, but also, we give money to the Southern Baptist Convention and something that's a cooperative fund uh, to consolidate our resources to send missionaries all over the world and to help with disaster relief efforts. Those are kind of the two biggest bills. And to uh, fund our seminaries for the training, the theological training uh, of young men who are seeking Uh, office in the church or just people who want a theological education in our fellowship. And so those are kind of the big ticket items that we've said, hey, we're going to be a part of this association uh, for the betterment. But it's important to understand that the Kentucky Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, none of these conventions, none of these associations exert authority over the local congregation. Okay, so we're not, we're very different from, say, Presbyterians in this way who've entrusted kind of a final authority to this presbytery. It's a board over the churches that rule over each one of them. Uh, but there, it does acknowledge the wisdom of having these associations. Um, let's move on to chapter 27. I am really trying to knock out each one of my chapters tonight. I've like made it my mission. So we're going we're gonna to keep clipping along. Uh, We could stay on the church for a while, but you have the communion of saints, and this is really uh, related to the first point. Uh, The communion of saints is uh, kind of a discussion about uh, the the relational bonds within the local church, but it begins with uh, a discussion about our union with Christ. Um, Who's familiar with that kind of union language? We're united to Christ. So our union with Christ is, is that we are one with Christ, right? It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, So we're united to Christ by faith, 
Uh, so we're relationally bonded for him. There's this once and for all uh, sense of the word union, where we're united to Christ forever. And there's no one that can take that away. And then you have the word uh, communion. And this is something that can, can wax and wane. And this is something that each of us has experienced. Uh, you know from, from the scriptures and you know from what we hear Sunday after Sunday is that each of us has been given, if we're in Christ, we've been inseparably, inseparably united to Christ by faith. And there is no one on earth who could take that away from us. Amen. Uh, but that union, that, 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 that assurance of your union with Christ, it doesn't, like, life, it just doesn't let you feel that way all the time, does it? Uh, I don't feel that inseparable union all the time. Sometimes I feel like the last thing on my mind is God and Jesus Christ in the Bible. Right? It's the last thing I want to think about. And then some days, all I want to do is tell people about Christ and read my Bible, right? My experience of that union differs. That's our communion with Christ. But at the foundation of all of our relationships in the church, we have our union with Christ, but we also commune with one another in uh, the church. And uh, what is this supposed to look like? And uh, Benjamin Keach, uh, he has this great quote. He says, you are to abide constantly in the place where you are a member. That would kind of make your eyes raise up a little bit. Like, am I supposed to be here all the time? Like, I'm supposed to have a job. I'm supposed to have a family. Uh, he's just talking about, uh, this isn't just a, a, you know, church, the community is not just a place that you visit. These aren't people you just see from time to time, but these are to be, uh, this is to be your true faith family. But as a community, we're supposed to do a number of things. Number one is we're gathered to worship together. Uh, Number two is we're to commune with one another. And this is one of the reasons we're called Ashland Community Church. Uh, one of the distinguishing features of our church you hear from people all the time. Uh, what are some of the, let's just say, let's just do good things. Uh, when people visit the church, if you heard them remark positively about the church, uh, like I said, there's no perfect church. What are some of the positive things that they say? We're friendly, okay? Some of us. Yeah, we keep the other ones in the basement. But we, for the most part, we're friendly. What else? Welcoming. Welcoming. Okay, great. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's terrific. What else? Yes, amen. Kennedy, Kennedy just went. <laughs> or, what'd you say, hon? You didn't do that. Um, I hear a lot of comments about the preaching at our church, um, but only when I'm preaching, which is kind of weird, you know? Um, no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. A uh, hearty har. Um, but you, but you know the number one answer. Oh, you guys are so nice. You're so welcoming. You're so friendly. Everybody's talking. Everybody's staying after church to visit with one another. And so, uh, you know, as a staff, we thought we'd propose the name Ashland Community Church because that's simply kind of what we're known for. That's what the Spirit is doing in this assembly. He's, he's creating this community. Um, and number three, we're also to assist, assist in those who are hurting. And we do that in a, in a, 
in a number of ways. Uh, but let's, let's move on to chapter 28. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the confession, it, it speaks about them jointly as ordinances, and then it breaks it out into each one. So um, in chapter 28, it talks about who is supposed to be uh, administering these things. Uh, and it distinguishes, it says, just those who are qualified and called. Um, but really the big note that comes out of chapter 28 is that uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, these are not optional, right? You're not doing these like, oh yeah, I really like, I, I think I would really vibe with getting baptized. If you've ever talked to someone like that, they think, I think I would really like to be baptized. Or some, maybe you've encountered someone who's like, ah, I don't really want to do that. I'm not really into water. Uh, or the Lord's Supper, that's another thing. If you've, you've ever heard, I don't really, want, I don't really get anything uh, out of the Lord's Supper. It's just the, you eat the thing, you take the cup, and you drink it, and it's just, I don't really get much out of it. Uh, but the confession's clear that uh, these two ordinances have been appointed by Christ uh, to really shed light on what we just talked about, this union and communion. Uh, so l let's do a little quiz. If you were to guess, uh, so union with Christ is this uh, once for all time uh, bond with Christ that can never be broken. He set his heart to save you and he's never going to be deterred. Would you assign uh, a symbolism of that union with Christ with baptism or the Lord's Supper? Baptism, right? That's why we don't, we don't baptize people multiple times, right? You don't go back and say, hey, I think I need, this first one didn't really take. Uh, why don't you just put me back in? I'm feeling really sluggish in my faith. I think a baptism would really like get my engine going, right? And we don't do that, right? You're baptized once and once and for all. Uh, and then you have communion, your ongoing, your ongoing relationship with Christ and his body. Uh, you would obviously assign the Lord's Supper uh, to that. Um, you know, we'd, we've been hearing some really great feedback about um, moving the Lord's Supper uh, to every week. Um, the confession isn't like very clear. It does say not to neglect it. It, see, it certainly feels like it's nudging you towards doing it as often as you can. Um, but one of the things that we've been hearing is that the Lord's Supper, since we're doing it every week, it doesn't seem as like morbid and sad. And um, usually, it, it, I mean, if, if you've been in the Lord's Supper, it can often feel like you're just supposed to like beat yourself up uh, and then go up and get it. Now, certainly uh, confession is an element that we're, we're not going to neglect, but the overall tone of the Lord's Supper here is that this is a family meal where we're we're going and we're feasting on uh, the benefits of Christ. Uh, there's also a lengthy, um, well, I'll get to it. I got to get to the baptism thing. That's funny. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're, we're given these two ordinances, one of them uh, to begin the Christian life and the other one to sustain you. Uh, but let's, let's zero in on baptism in chapter 29. Uh, we have baptism is a symbol uh, so it's, it's, it's given as a sign. Uh, and so we believe that baptism uh, isn't necessary for faith in Christ. It doesn't bestow you with saving faith. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of what, what, what they say. It's a symbol of an inward change that's happening. Uh, 
Um, but it, it means a lot more than that. But um, it's a sign of fellowship. This is the, the language. A sign of fellowship with Christ in his death and his resurrection. You might say, well, how does it do that? It seems pretty arbitrary. And water in the Old Testament is used as a symbol for a lot of things. Where are some of the, the primary places you see water in the Old Testament? Kennedy and I were just in Egypt. We, it's a symbol of life oftentimes. The water of life, which is actually, yeah, that, which is actually foreshadowed and then confirmed in the New Testament. But where, uh, where Kennedy and I just came from in Egypt, we actually got to be in the Red Sea. We are all the, it's, I thought it would be like this crazy holy place. It's a beach. I mean, we were just on the beach. We were eating, yeah, we were eating lunch by the Red Sea. It was surreal, uh, you know, but in that story, uh, when Moses is uh, leading uh, the Israelites away from Egypt, they, he parts the Red Sea, which we typically think is like the main point of that story, right? Like, oh, it's amazing that he parted it. Um, but the parting of the Red Sea is not, it's not necessarily good news if you just part it, right? You know, it's like, oh, this is amazing. We're walking through, but the Egyptians are just going to pursue, right? They're just going to pursue you and kill you on that other side, right? All right, what we, really, what we see next, what, the real good news of the Red Sea is, is what? What happens after he parts it? He brings it back down on the Egyptians, okay? So that's the good news of the Red Sea, is not so much that he that that God used Moses to part the waters, but that he crushed his enemies under it. So in this story, it's a symbol of death. We also see it with with Noah, right? Which is he coats the he coats the entire earth, uh, destroys most of humanity. Um, yeah, that's that's another place. Anywhere else? What? Yeah, we see, we, we see in the Old Testament, water is often used to signify death. And so we see, why, do we, why is water so important? Because we're immersing, uh, we're immersing this person into the death of Christ, but they don't stay there. Right? So we don't just leave them under there, we drown them. Right? We immerse them into death, and then we pull them up out of it. Uh, and so it's a, it's a sign and a symbol of solidarity with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And then in the New Testament, we see that we're going to be given the waters of life without cost, right? Water, again, means, means life. So it has this kind of dual meaning. Um, but let, uh, let's continue on. Uh, we have the Lord's Supper. So this is the one that's given to us for our nourishment and growth uh, through the Christian life. And um, what do you think, what is some of the predominant uh, religions uh, in this area, in London, in Europe, at the time of this writing? What would you say is like the most popular religions at the time? Catholicism. Uh, and so oftentimes... Uh, you know, these confessions are often shaped by the historical, Casey's already said that a thousand times, I'm sure. I'm just going to let you, you've heard it. Um, but the confession is very specific about the Lord's Supper. 
And it says that this is a memorial only. Now, why do you think they would make a point to say, okay, the Lord's Supper is just a memorial? Specifically in the shadow of the Roman Catholic Church. Right, yeah, that's called, that's called transubstantiation. Yeah, I was... I, yeah, it is a big word. I grew up Catholic, I know it. Um, but I always thought that was strange because they're very adamant of, that it's the literal body and blood of Jesus. And, I, you know, I've tried to, like, kind of, I try to, like, kind of push and figure out, okay, where's the point where you say, well, it's really just, you know, wine and bread. But you really can't get them to say that at all until the very end, it's Christ's literal body and, body and blood. Uh, and so we see the writers of this confession, they think it's very important to emphasize that this is a memorial. Nothing, nothing is being transubstantiated here. Uh, this isn't becoming, in any sense of the word, Christ's uh, body and blood. But the confession goes on, and, it's, and it says that those who partake uh, of the Lord's Supper receive and feed on Christ and his benefits. Uh, so that doesn't just sound like we're remembering, like it's, you know, like going through a museum, you know, and you're reading the plaques on the wall that explain, you know, the Lord's Supper isn't just like a historical plaque for us to remember what Jesus did for us. Uh, we're actually being encouraged uh, and, we're, and we're bringing to mind all the benefits that we have in Christ. So while it's a memorial, uh, it's, not, it's not like just a memorial, like it's time to remember, as if remembering isn't a spiritual thing. But as we remember uh, what Christ has done for us, what's signified by the breaking of the body and the pouring out of his blood, um, the benefits of the gospel are being brought to our minds and those are nourishing our hearts. Um, anyway, let's, let's move on to, to chapter 31. We aren't doing it, guys. Um, actually, yeah, let's, ta let's take a quick tea. I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm ahead of schedule, which I would not have bet was going to happen. Um, does anyone have any questions or just like comments? And it's just like a bit of an aside, my background with this kind of thing, I was clear that, um, you know, I grew up, I grew up Catholic, and they're on the spectrum of, of like, you know, the kind of the dichotomy between, you know, it's just me and the Bible, no creed but the Bible, and tradition rules, you know, Catholicism is way over there uh, compared to this, and so my you know, natural reaction to that is to kind of bristle up. And when, when we first were kind of diving into more this confessional stuff, I'm a little more uncomfortable with it. So uh, it's, I understand the importance, but each of us is going to react to it a little differently. I'm a little, uh, this is new for me. If this is new for you, I just want you to know it's, it's pretty new for me. And so, um, I'm with you on that. But does anyone have any questions so far or comments or something they read that was helpful? No? Great. Well, let's continue. Uh, let's look at chapter 31. So we're moving um, out of ecclesiology, 
Uh, ecclesiology is a big, fancy word that says a theology of the church, how the church is governed. So, but we're still, in, in, in a lot of ways, talking about that first theme that we discussed. We're talking about, about power. Um, but chapter 31 is titled, The State of Humanity After Death and the Resurrection of the Dead. Uh, so it's dealing with what happens when you die. This is the question. Uh, well, the scripture uh, actually teaches us about this, and the confession uh, cites it. But what happens to you after you're, de after you're dead? Um, so it says that you're immediately spiritually transported uh, to either uh, heaven for those who are righteous or hell for the unrighteous. Um, so again, why, would, why do you think, let's, get back, let's put back on our, our historical glasses. Why would it be very important to emphasize where you go right after death in this time? Soul sleep, right? Um, exactly. And also, um, the Roman we have Roman Catholicism again, the major religion of the day. Uh, we have purgatory. And um, there's this teaching, if you're not familiar with purgatory, is that uh, it, let's say you left an un lived an unrighteous life. And I'm not, I'm not making up this definition. This is just what's in their catechism. So... Uh, and what they've taught historically. There's this place kind of more or less, let's use imprecise language, between heaven and hell. Uh, and you can, you're, you're going to be there until a final judgment is made about your life. Um, and you, you might say, like, where is this in the Bible? It's, it's not there. But uh, it's an important teaching to understand Roman Catholicism uh, because it was... It was at the core of their. Uh, it was at the core of their theology about indulgences. Does anyone know what a, what an indulgence is in the Roman Catholic world? Well, it it was it was common practice. Well, you know, they would tell you, "Hey, um, your relative died, and they're in purgatory right now, and for the low low price of four installments of forty nine ninety five, you can get them out." Uh, that's essentially what an indulgence was. You would make a donation to the church and you could move your family members out of purgatory into heaven for, for, for a price. Um, and so they would charge money for different things. And so the confession, again, is um, not necessarily reacting, but they just want to make it crystal clear because that's one of the dominant religions of the day. Is that there's, there's, none of this, there's none of this purgatory stuff. There's no... There's, no, there's nothing you can do once your relative is dead to influence where they end up. Um, and then uh, it also uh, makes clear that at the judgment day, uh, all of us will be resurrected. So if you die before the return of Christ, spiritually you'll be, you'll be sent to hell or you'll be sent to heaven, uh, depending on if you had faith in Christ. Uh, but on the final day, the last day, as it often is re referred to in Scripture, uh, at that last day, all bodies will be resurrected, and then final judgment will be will be placed, uh, and you'll either and your body will either suffer eternity in hell, or it will, or you'll enjoy um, eternal bliss in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and then in chapter thirty-two, we have the last judgment. Uh, so it's speaking about that day. 
Uh, in that day, uh, the confession says, the glory of his mercy is going, to be, is going to be made clear in the salvation of the elect. And in that last judgment, uh, there's two features, two characteristics of God uh, that are going to be put on display. Um, his justice and his mercy. Now, on that last day in the judgment, how do you think his mercy uh, will be vindicated? How is his mercy going to be on display on that last day? Right, he's going to, yeah, through his sacrifice, he's going to save the elect. He's going to save all those who are in Christ. They're going to be finally vindicated. And then his justice is going uh, to be made known uh, in his final judgment of those uh, who died in their sins. Um, yeah, now, you know, I actually forgot to do something. Uh, grab out your little, uh, little sheet here. Let's talk about this real quick before we finish. Um, yes, so it says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and uh, sovereign manner. So this is an addition uh, that many churches make uh, to this confession where, again, we find that it's a historical document. Um, the, an the Antichrist is specifically labeled in the confession as it's written. It says that the Pope is the Antichrist uh, or is an Antichrist. Um, and the reason that we've made the change, basically we haven't changed any wording here. We've just, you know, controlled, deleted, you know, uh, all of that. Uh, where it specifically labels the Pope. There's a couple reasons. Um, first of all, it's, it's clear that there can be a lot of antichrists in the scripture, but also uh, we don't really want to go out of our way to label uh, anything as the antichrist for a similar reason that we don't try to choose a date when judgment is going to happen. Does that make sense? Uh, because we are fallible creatures and when we're writing our confession, you know, we want to make sure that even if the Roman Catholic Church vanishes off the face of the earth uh, one day, um, we don't want to date the confession in that way. Uh, we don't want to make a prediction because we're fallible creatures. It would be, you know, it's just not in the Bible. It labels the Pope. Obviously not. Roman Catholicism was not around as the Bible's being written. Uh, but it's just not in scripture who the Antichrist is or how to point them out. So we're just not going to do that in our confession. Does that make sense? Uh, it could just, it, it's just troublesome to try and point out stuff like that that's in scripture and label it because uh, you're kind of, uh, you're at the mercy of the times. Th times change and you're probably not as right as you think you are on a lot of things. So we're just not going to make that, uh, we're not going to make that assumption. But... Um, uh, back, to, back to the last judgment, uh, and the, the confession says that we've been given, uh, that the last judgment is given for two reasons, other than it's just going to happen in scripture, but uh, it's done in such a way that we don't know the day, and the confession says two things. To, the first one is to defer men from sin. Do you have any guesses as to why not knowing 
the day of that final judgment, uh, why would that defer men from sin? Why would that defer us from sinning? There you go. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I had, a, I had a friend in college in my fraternity who, you know, he asked me, you know, I was, I'm, I'm in this fraternity. It's like a den of hedonism, right? People are just trying to enjoy the day. Um, he said, hey, why would you, choose? and that's when I got saved. He'd say, why would you choose to follow Christ now? Why won't you just wait till later? Uh, why wouldn't you just, you know, do this in a, in a less opportune time. You can have all the fun you want right here. And then later you can take all this Jesus stuff seriously. And he said, that's what I'm planning on doing. Uh, I mean, number one, if you've experienced what it is to be saved, you know that there's no delay. You, could, you just run into the arms of Christ and hold on to him, right? That's what, that's what it feels like when you get saved, isn't it? Uh, but an, an, another good answer, and that's what I told him, but another good answer is, I don't, he could come back at any moment. <laughs> I, it's not for me to decide, to assume that he's not going to come back tomorrow or the week after that. And so, yeah, I mean, it, and very simply, you don't know when he's going to return. So uh, you're less fraught to that kind of sinful kind of planning out your obedience. Uh, and then he also says, uh, it, it also says, second reason, uh, where the last judgment is assured to us for the consolation of those in adversity, to comfort those who are suffering. How does that, how would you say that the idea of a last judgment is going to comfort someone who's suffering or is being persecuted? Yes. That's, yes, absolutely, Breck. I mean, that's one of the, and, the, and like, we can pause. This is all like, it's kind of confession talk. It can be hard to work through, but there's something beautiful here is that every single trial that you've been through, that you're going through, even the ones that might not even go away before you're dead, you might be with them your whole life. But no matter what, every trial, every sin, for those who are in Christ, there's an expiration date. It's going to go bad. It's going to rot. It's going to fade away. Uh, what an encouragement to us in any sort of suffering we're going through, any sort of trial or one of Paul's thorns in the flesh, whatever is ailing you, know that there's an expiration date. Christ will not abide any affliction uh, for any of his children forever. And so we know that in Christ while this life is going to be difficult, it won't be difficult forever. And at the last judgment, we'll be uh, vindicated. Um, anyway, that's, that's, that's the lesson I prepared for us. Does anyone have any questions or comments uh, about what we discussed? All right, well, let's pray together.